Hello and welcome back to All My Darlings, where we are finishing up, I think I can legitimately say that now, uh, Marguerite Young's Angel in the Forest. We are on page 294, uh, and this is the last part of Robert Owens, this is the last part of the chapter, I had to break it up into three parts. And it's Robert Owen's ideal made real. And so we left off with Prince Albert and the Crystal Palace. I found out what the Chartist movement was. Um, okay. The shock of delighted surprise, which everyone felt on first entering the great transept of Sir Joseph Paxton's building, was as novel as it was deep. Sir Theodore Martin wrote, Its vastness was measured by the two great elms, two of the giants of the park, which rose far into the air with all their wealth of foliage, <clears throat> as free and unconfined as if there were nothing between them in the open sky. The plash of fountains, the luxuriance of the tropical foliage, the play of colors from the choicest flowers, carried on into the vistas of the nave by the rich dyes of carpets and stuffs from the costliest looms were enough to fill eye and mind with a pleasure never to be forgotten, even without a vague sense of what lay far beyond in the accumulated results of human ingenuity and cultivated art. One general effect of beauty had been produced by the infinitely varied work of the thousands who had separately cooperated toward this wonderful display, and the structure in which it was set by its graceful lines and the free play of light which it admitted seemed to fulfill every condition that could be desired for setting off the treasures thus brought together. Beautiful at all times, the sight which the transept presented on the opening day, with its eager crowds raised row upon row, with the toilets of the women and the sprinkling of court costumes and uniforms, was one which men grew eloquent in describing. That was a big long quote. At the festival held here, like a densely crowded mass of human beings stood in the slight drizzle of rain outside, and myriads of aristocrats filled the galleries and seats around, and trumpets flourished, and thousands of hallelujahs rent the air. A Chinese son of heaven came forward to prostrate himself before Queen Victoria, who was quite squat, having lost her girlish figure even as he had lost his pride. Never, she said, not even on the occasion of her coronation, had she felt so much glory as in this house of peace, for never before had been combined such peculiarity and such beauty on earth. The greatest triumph of the day, however, all commentators agreed, was the perfect behavior of the English people. Thirty thousand within, seven hundred and fifty thousand without. There were no demonstrations of red republicans or hostile chartists or of Irish agitators, according to one report. According to another, the crowd of the Crystal Palace vanished quietly away. According to Thackeray, how frail and weak was the hand that swayed the scepter, how transient the scene as if a wizard had erected a blazing arch of lucid glass. Difficult to visualize the distant mutinies, the process without harmony. Perhaps the Chinese son of heaven had the last laugh after all. For though he had fallen on his face, he had saved his face, being no son of heaven, but a rank impostor who had rented a costume for the occasion, and was laughing up his sleeve. Yet this crystal palace, this house of peace, was a colossal joke, built during the progress of many wars in Indian Africa and on the eve of the Crimean War. Horror fill, followed upon horror, war upon war, and there was never a moment of peace, as bit by bit the ex exhibition of empire grew beyond all bounds. During the great progress of a mistaken history, Robert Owen kept long, longer hours than a mill worker ever did. He was unable to contain within himself the flame of his love for all mankind, English, Irish, Amir, Russian, Turkish, the many nations 
nations which must be united. Clergymen and politicians, alarmed by the vastly increasing number and enthusiasm of his followers, furnished free whiskey to the workers in the towns where he was to appear with his message of united labor. Hence, wherever he arrived, a bedlam had been prepared in advance. There were riots, stonings, and conflagrations as clergymen and police stood by, watching the grand show, the expulsion of Lucifer. In city after city, the Owenite cathedrals were mutilated or destroyed. Owenite workers were dismissed by their employers and refused employment elsewhere. The unorganized mass were betrayed by the values they had accepted. The purveyors of a capitalistic myth were thus held to be infallible. In the amphitheater at Bristol on January 5th, 6th, and 7th, 1841, occurred a debate between Robert Owen and John Brindley, subject to that old question, the nature of mankind, whether only the defectives suffer privation. Brindley's book first occupied both his and the time allotted to Robert Owen, his argument that God and communism were everlastingly opposed. Whenever Robert Owen arose to speak, the sands and the hourglass were already filled. In the few moments he had, his speech was interrupted by the loud boos of Brindley's hirelings. He predicted, though his voice could hardly be heard above so many boos and catcalls, the ruin of Bristol, Leeds, Manchester, and Birmingham, when the spirit of aristocracy should pour hail and brimstone from the sky upon the warrens of the poor. Brindley had accused Robert Owen of being the author of Shelley's Queen Mab, from which he had read, in the course of his argument, numerous passages to show the ex-cotton lord's espousal of sensuality and atheism. Robert Owen denied that he had written Shelley's poem, although he had been Shelley's bosom friend, he admitted. His <coughs> denial, like his prophecy, was unheard, so loud were the boos of old boozes in the audience. Nor could they hear him when he said that he had not separated from his wife on unfriendly terms, but on the friendliest, and his wife was dead. Perhaps in the midst of even this confusion he drove home to the heart of the world a shaft of profound truth, that the workers of the world must unite to overthrow all those who deceive them. Perhaps not. At Burslem, the workers turned out to greet him with sticks and stones, for they were as drunk as Indians, and knew not that this was their Tecumseh returning among them. Poor, exploited human nature. It was not the subject of Robert Owen's praise or blame. Perhaps some old drunk, reeling home or coming to after a long period of unconsciousness, would realize the rational truth within his frame corporal. Lloyd-Jones, socialist leader, was twice attacked by the clergy-inspired mob, but managed to give his speech on the characters of Moses, Jesus Christ, Martin Luther, and Robert Owen as the four truly great leaders born to mankind. He was far from alone in his opinion. He recorded for posterity a letter written to Robert Owen at this period of his great, though seemingly hopeless, activity. Every man who has a soul to comprehend his honor and his duty must respect you for being the friend of the working classes. To the white slaves who are born in the most Christian country, commonly called the Paradise or Clouds or England, these homeless people brought home to England honor and freedom, and the English capitalists repay them with naked distress. Ralph Waldo Emerson, on the occasion of one of Robert Owen's visit to America in the 1840s, asked him who was his disciple and who would be left to carry on his work when he was gone. He answered no one. He was the better Christian in his controversies than Christians. Emerson said, preaching his doctrine of labor and reward with the fidelity and devotion of a saint to the slow, car, slow ears of his generation. Emerson, however, as the spokesman for transcendent individualism, held the whole communistic project in impossibility. Robert Owen had skipped no faculty but one, namely, life. For such men had treated man as a plastic thing, or as something that might be put up or down or manufactured into gases or a vegetable from which, though now a very poor crab, 
very good peach can be manure and exposure be in time produced. A very good peach can, by manure and exposure, be in time produced. Life once it continued rather, rather a thing which spawns and spurns systems and system makers, which eludes all conditions, which makes or supplants a thousand flannexes and new harmonies with each pulsation. All men should become themselves lovers and servants of that which is just. Then straightway, then straightway we live under the laws of Plato and Christ, no system required. All men plume themselves on the improvement of society, and no man improves. Time had taken its toll even from the best of men. As Robert had grown old, he had suffered from the not unusual malady of an increasing deafness. That fact and the influence of his eldest son, Robert Dale, were held to account for his annexation finally to, it, to this world of yet another, the empire of spiritual beings as they exist detached from flesh. Cut off to a large degree in his later years from communication with the living, whose words he could not hear, Robert Owen relied more and more upon messages from the so-called dead, whose words, like the music of the conch shell, were a repetition of the universal. The invisible and inaudible powers purporting to be from the spirit world were a company of materialistic socialists and rationalists, Thomas Paine, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, the Duke of Kent, Elijah, Old James Buchanan, and a certain nameless washwoman on Glasgow Green, among others. They were not transcendent individuals but focal points for the correct social relations. They were, like Robert Owen, deeply concerned with the progress of the British labor movement, the Federation of World Nations, the knowledge that there is neither great nor small. Their manifesto delivered from the cloud was a cry against the enslavement of the masses, a cry against deception in every form. If, during their wanderings through the ethereal vault, they had ever come upon a crystal palace filled with disembodied diamond cutters, they mentioned no such encounter as even possible. Nor had they ever assembled before Jehovah's throne, upheld by hunch, hunchbacks and cherubim. In piercing cold above the seventh sphere, though they had been everywhere, nor had they seen good pasture land and apple trees on any star but this. They had been all around the universe, to the utmost corners, and their experience was such as to induce them to believe in no decaying glory, no casket of illusion and memory, no new Jerusalem, no crown of crowns. Benjamin Franklin, from his position in the cloud, presented an outline of his new discoveries concerning the positive utilization of electricity and the harnessing of cosmic elements. Duke of Kent was as punctual in keeping his appointments in the cloud as he had been when he walked on earth. He said that there were no lords, spiritual or temporal, no dynasties, no royal families in the world beyond, that all were equal. In 1854, in a speech entitled Address to the Human Race, Robert Owen made known his vast discoveries. A great moral revolution was soon to be effected by an apparent miracle. He was compelled to believe, contrary to his previous strong convictions, that there is a future conscious state of life, a state existing in a refined material like the dance of golden atoms in the void, yet even more subtle. From the natural progress of creation, departed spirits had attained the power to communicate, by various means, none supernatural, their feelings and knowledge to us living upon the earth. These beings were not, as Robert Owen had once believed, the product of the diseased imagination. They showed by irresistible evidence that the potentialities of man's development are limitless, and that there is no boundary line, moral or geographic, which cannot be crossed by the progressive human spirit. Through the aid of reliable American and English mediums on both sides of the Atlantic, Robert Owen had heard the voices of innumerable spiritual beings like a surf beating on the shores of heaven. Thousands of nameless men and women had spoken to him, clearly and lucidly, their revelations were made for the express purpose of changing the present false, disunited, and miserable state of human existence to that which it was intended to be in the nature of things, a rational order. 
This state would arise, they said, from a new universal education or formation of human character when the science of society should be practiced. This was their mission in the year. Enjoying an immaculate perception in all things, they were preparing mankind for an everlasting new harmony. They would infuse in all peoples the luminosity of their knowledge of of charity, forbearance, and brotherly love. They would release mankind from poignant doubts about reality and from the dream of death. Already having circumnavigated the universe, they had shown that there was no figure encompassed by stars like golden pomegranates, no power of powers. Were it not for these new and most extraordinary manifestations, Robert Owen concluded, there would arise a conflict between the evil spirits of democracy and aristocracy, which would deluge the world with blood and would create universal violence and slaughter among all nations. Some felt, hearing this declamation and others of a similar nature, that the father of socialism had gone astray and was out on the proverbial limb. Others considered more charitably that one of his advanced years in deafness might well become the prey of fantasy or ruthless mediums. Indeed, from a strict, finite point of view, St. John the Baptist was a colossal failure, because he was beheaded. But in the larger environment of spiritual history, he remains as a preacher with his head upon his shoulders. The unsubstantiality of Robert Owens' last hour, discoursing with bastard mediums at two dollars an hour, could not rob him of the substantiality of a lifetime engaged in activities for the real advancement of the human race. His spiritualism was, after all, only a restatement of his socialistic teachings, to unite all hearts in the words of the old New Harmony Gazette. If he had retired into a realm of phantasmal unreality, he had still done so as a socialist, and never to aggrandize the concept of heaven and hell, crime and punishment. Dearest Caroline had now no use for any but the united family. Her charity was infinite, a perfume in the universe. She was become an associate of Mrs. Fletcher, Queen of the Unitarians. The elder Owen inquired, had Wales put off its old garments and believed that man is incorruptible, and had embraced the cubes of human populace, the science of society. Old James Buchanan, lover of children and butterflies, was become in the cloud an associate of Bacon, Newton, Locke, Hume, and many other excellent philosophers. Erect no unnecessary hypothesis whatever, he advised Robert Owen in the human race. Happiness is the instinct of the universe, he added somewhat extraneously. Daniel Defoe recalled that, had the circumstances been reversed, Benjamin Franklin might have stood in a pillory, and he might have been an author of American freedom, and presented at Windsor a coonskin hat. Napoleon was not rational. The spirits were never inactive, never somnolent. Theirs was the highest flight ever attained by charity. They crossed the skies over Europe, shedding the radiance of their being on France, Germany, Russia, Poland, Italy, all nations. They were inflamed with an everlasting passion to liberate the suppressed masses and to allow the buildings of rectangular villages where there had been dark factories and warrens of the poor, vast centers of mechanized starvation, yea, in the very shadow of the Gothic cathedral, the Gothic castle, the spire. Alas, they buzzed like bees in a medium's capacious bonnet. At a seance in a boarding house of shady reputation, where there were both velvet curtains and mechanized mysteries, to say nothing of the twitterings of a few hysterical girls in the upper rooms, the spirits presented to Robert Owen their plans for villages which were to take the place of mercantile ruins, both present and future. These plans, drawn by visible pencils on blank sheets of paper midair, showed the ideal city to be not rectangular after all. The curved line, such as governs bodies, trees, and planets in their courses, was the truest one, all things moving by indirection. The new new harmony, the spirits dictated, was to be circles within circles throughout eternity. 
The lines were a kind of spider's web, or like the honeycombs made by certain kinds of undeveloped bees, or perhaps like the ancient mazes. They were accompanied by designs such as those on Greek tombs in Thessaly. The spirits Robert Owen said had obeyed a greater logic than his. The Duke of Kent, always obliging, gave instructions regarding the proposed circular villages and the new harmony of earth with heaven and names of members of Parliament who might be most sympathetic to a program for their immediate construction in England. The end, needless to say, was near at hand. In 1856, the British government annexed Ode, I don't know how to say that, O-U-D-H, Ode in India, and gave it to its tyrant a magnificent pension. The past called the modern city in both curious and splendid, and altogether unlike the great towns of India, whether Hindu or Mohammedan, wrote its English governor. There is a strange dash of European architecture among its oriental buildings. Gilded domes surmounted by the crescent, tall pillars, lofty colonnades, houses that looked as if they had been transported from Regent Street, cages of wild beasts and birds, gilt letters on butcher shops, English baroques. Ode was a a compromise effected between the new and the oldest order of things. In 1857, in his 86th year, Robert Owen, deaf and almost blind, read a paper before the Social Science Association of Birmingham entitled The Human Race Governed Without Punishment. Attempting to read a paper before that organization the following year at Liverpool, he fainted in the midst of his speech and was carried from the platform. This was almost his last public appearance. For a fortnight he lay as one in a coma, unable to lift his hand, a poor old man in a broken-down hotel, a flophouse for improv- improvident salesmen, house for improvident salesmen like himself. He had been rich, and now he was poor. He had been one of the few common men ever allowed to be seated in the presence of Queen Victoria, and now he was dying. He saw his whole life pass before him, a shadow play on the wall of this Plato's cave. Everything came back to him. It was all as fugitive as a dream, yet clear and hard. Nothing had been diminished by time. He saw, as if they were still happening, the events which were past and gone, the thousand, thousand evils, the great suffering, the great disasters, saw as if they were one, the laughing House of Lords, the weeping bishops of Ireland, a man named George Rapp, a man named Ralph Atkinson, bewildered educators, Tamerlane and petticoats, the exaltation of a lemon tree above mankind, the king of Delhi, who had considered himself the king of kings, yea, and a certain Quaker martyr to luxury in many pyramids. These were his anniversaries, his evening balls and engagements, his migrations from town to country house, his many errands. In a strait between two worlds, had he not always desired the better? He saw that each moment was eternity. He saw that there was nothing beyond beyond. He saw the poverty of heaven. He saw hundreds, thousands of little children chained like castrated dogs and coal mines and iron foundries, beatings, imprisonments, wounds of the spear, the stunted adult, the dwarfish mind, the soul without body, the body without soul. He saw... He hoped he saw the crumbling pyramids when the workers of the world should be united. These were his Episcopalian communions, his Unitarian church membership, his marriage bed, his human family, his self-love, and his essential loneliness. For as long as one sentient being suffered, he would suffer too. Were they English? So was he. Were they Russian? So was he. Were they German? So was he. Were they French, Polish, or Negro? So was he. Were they Jews, Indians, or Irish? So was he. Yea, and he was nothing of himself he knew, with his life hanging on a single thread. Poor Maria Pierce, a featureless stuffed doll in a wooden coffin, the huge parody. 
These were his peacock gardens, his crystal palaces. These were his long weekend in the green country, where he had seen the Pope of Rome in an old hen house, the House of Lords, and the Rapite maze. How cast off that withered garment the spell of the past? Charity was still the goal, and even things without life giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds. How shall it be known what is piped or harped? The world's confusion was still the world's confusion. So likewise ye, except ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? For ye shall speak into the air. Robert Owen rose from his bed, tottering, hardly able to put on his clothes and wind his watch. A little man, humped, almost transparent, the color of winter's gray thistle, a head which he had always believed to be too big for his body. He was going back to Wales, at last, and the seeds which he planted would bear their fruits in the new moral world to come. Spirits perched upon his bedposts, innumerable voices of the light and air, innumerable carpenters, mechanics, saddlers, tillers of the soil, had said that in Wales he would find the cradle for the science of society, never the grave. In Wales, they said he would begin his life's work over again. Its end would be but its beginning. So sick he could scarcely walk, he traveled by train, third class, to Shrewsbury, with ancient clucking dames around him, and by carriage the last thirty miles, a second-class passenger, as Shelley's bright hair streamed in the wind like autumn leaves. All the way, huddled under his great coat, with hardly the strength to see him to the end of his journey, Robert Owen drew up plans for the reorganization of the par parish at Newton in Wales. All that was necessary for the true science society believed he carried in his bag. A few cubes of human populace, a copy of the laws of human nature, a few old mortality rates, a map of the world, a map of the stream of time, the theory of happiness. A blue ribbon which had been, in, which had been Caroline's. A circular city marked on paper, the design for a Greek tomb, a letter to mankind. When his carriage turned toward Newton, he shouted for pure joy. He had come home at last, accompanied by an old doctor of Wales, toothlessly smiling, who had allowed him to read a medical treatise, and Thomas Jefferson, in whom the worm had created no vacancies. Vacuities, sorry. In 1902, the people of Wales erected a monument in memory of Robert Owen. The sentence from his works was inscribed on a slab of stone. It is to the great and universal interest of the human race to be cordially united and to aid each other to the full extent of their capacities. Attached to the front of the railings is a bronze bas-relief depicting the father of modern socialism with a veiled figure of justice behind him holding out his hand to a long procession of the workers of the world. A weaver stooping beneath the bag on his shoulders, a potter carrying a large jar, a farmer with his skies, a carpenter with a bundle of tools, a woman bent down to a field. Frederick Ingalls, collaborator with Karl Marx, said, Every social movement, every real advance in England, on behalf of the workers, links itself to the name of Robert Owen. A man of almost sublime and childlike simplicity, he was at the same time one of the few born leaders of men. His specific plans as a social reformer, Robert Dale wrote more conservatively, proved on the whole and for the time a failure. Yet with such earnestness, such indomitable perseverance, and such devotion and love for his race, did he press, through half a century, his plans upon the public, and so much truth was there mixed with visionary expectation, that his name became known, and the influence of his teachings has been attended by sterling incidental successes, and toward the great idea of cooperation, quite impracticable as he conceived it, there has been, ever since his death, very considerable advance a very considerable advance made 
and generally recognized by earnest men and eminently useful and important. I think, because I've been watching, um, so I finished Josephine, oh shoot, oh yeah, this one's a long chapter too. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, Okay, so yeah, I'll do that in two parts of four pages each. And then we have a short chapter and then the last chapter, which I will, I think it's a little bit longer, but I will go ahead and do that. In two, three, four, oh no, we'll be fine. Yep, so three more parts. No, this one's going to be split into two, so... One, two, three, four. Okay, four. Four more parts and we will be done. Um, I finished Josephine B. It was uh, wonderful. Absolutely recommended. It. It's a trilogy. Um, just really gives a humanizing portrait of Josephine Bonaparte, uh, Bonaparte and also, also Napoleon. And um, which I, I didn't know that much history about it anyway. So it was really, I mean, just beyond the basics. So it was really good. I really liked it. Um, thoroughly enjoyed it. 1,200 pages, but well worth the read. And then, um, oh, uh, so I started re-watching Destination. I like Ghost, uh, ever since Ghost Hunters came on, uh, a while, long while back. Um, I love ghost shows and, uh, uh, Ghost Brothers came on and I'm, I'm really enjoying that one. Um, and I found a new one called Destination Fear. And then I recognized that Dakota, who's in that one, uh, was also in uh, Ghost Adventures. And um, they were at a hospital that uh, in the Appalachians, which served uh, minors. And um, <clears throat> because I can't get their shows, I have to stream it or something. But anyways, they're on YouTube. So I decided to watch those. And... Um, I think it's hard for us to imagine in the U.S. I'm sure not in other places, but in the U.S. I think it's hard for us to imagine back then the state of workers at that time and what <clears throat> Young is talking about. Um, you're t there were there was no social safety net, which some bitterly complain about. So they must be perfectly happy with people dying in gruesome ways, which I think they are. Um, just my opinion. So... I think it's really hard for us to imagine the horrific accidents that happened back at that time. And they showed some very brief uh, at the types of, of accidents, coal mine accidents and people who ended up in the hospital. They showed very brief pictures of that. And, um, and it's gruesome. And I don't think a lot of people will not, I mean, people from Appalachian, yes, those people who had descendants of that kind of mining, then yes, they probably, you know, they remember. But I think it's hard for anybody else who's been outside of that. I mean, mine was farming. So you think of farming or construction accidents. But even then, it wasn't, there wasn't anything massive. Um, I had one of my good friends that was in a factory accident because he was working with toxic chemicals and you have to wear a mask that pumped oxygen in. And, uh, and, truly horrific accident uh, the, uh whatever happened the lines got crossed and the oxygen wasn't pumped in but the poison it wasn't get the oxygen carbon dioxide you know the the that respiratory stuff and 
however it happened, he ended up getting poisoned in the lines and died. So, I mean, but those are like, you know, here and there, it's not like a whole group of people, like a huge explosion, which I mean, we have happened, but I just don't think we in the United States remember that far back, how really horrific it was that there was no social safety net. If a man lost his arm, then he didn't work again. Like there wasn't a whole lot of places to go. And if he was married, then, you know, God help him because then, you know, women couldn't work and had to take care of everything or had to find these menial, uh, very low paying jobs. Or like in England, they just put, you know, children to work and stuff, which is really horrific. And starting to come back in the U.S. for some God unknown reason. And the other rant that I want to talk about, because I can either go on Facebook, half my family are just loony racist they're just racist so not like my family but it's the family they married into uh the families that that they married into and i've always known like i've always known how the other half you know half my family is racist always known that and so they post stuff on facebook i nobody agreed with them yeah i have to think like i would be the only one like do i rant back at them like do i like look (laughs) don't be an effing Nazi. <laughs> so like, I don't, so instead I'm just going to rant here because why not? So, so they're making this false correlation between migrants and disabled veterans. And somehow if you, like, it's that classic us versus them. And so if we weren't spending money taking care of immigrants, we could spend all the money on taking care of, of, uh, us soldiers. First off, I don't know who they're, th- I don't know who they're kidding. The American, the American government's never given a crap about soldiers. I had a stepfather who was in the military. I had him, he had problems. The U.S. government, the U.S. military doesn't give a crap about you. They just use you until you're, they're done with you and then they dismiss you. Meanwhile, you've been brainwashed to think that they're wonderful. So you can't ever talk to a soldier, even when you try and talk to them and say, hey, like you're getting screwed over. Nah, you know, no, the U.S. government wouldn't do that. So, um, yeah, so I've seen that, that side of it. And the suicidal statistics are horrendous because they basically screw you up and then release you and don't care. Like there's no way to put you back together again, I guess, once they break you. So, um, or some, you know, that stuff happens or stuff happens to you. I don't know. Cause murdering people wholesale, like kind of messes you up. It's supposed to, it's not supposed to be easy. Um, so they're making this false thing. Like uh, if we just weren't spending money on immigrants, we could spend all our money on uh, disabled servicemen. And you're just like, what? Like this doesn't make any sense. Like, first of all, there isn't us versus them. There isn't, it, it, they're taking two opposite things that have no correlation together. And then trying to say there's some correlation. There's none. Guess what? And I'd have to go back and I'm not going to, to pull it from Robert Reich. Um, who made a very astute point. There's like it's a fraction of the population that owns like half a trillion dollars in, in resources. Like there's, there's the, the richest of the rich are controlling like the top 90% of wealth of, the, of everything. I don't have my numbers correct, but it's an impossible, impossibly big number. Like the only... Billionaires and millionaires that pay their fair share in taxes are lottery winners. Like otherwise, 
none of the other millionaires and billionaires do. Like, it just doesn't happen. So it's like, know your enemy if you really want those things to take care, be taken. If you really want servicemen to be taken care of, absolutely, they should. First, try, like, we know what they did to the first responders in 9-11. Like, the government doesn't give a crap, and they will not pay for it. So there's your first problem. So what? I don't understand. Somebody explain it to me. I don't get it. You know that the government isn't going to take care of you. Like, why? Why would you blame immigrants for something that the U.S. government should be taking care of? I don't get it. When really, like, if you want to take that money from millionaires and billionaires because you're protecting their interests, why would you take the money from them? Why would you just make the government do what it's supposed to do? Why? Because we saw how many people died as first responders in 9-11 and I'm sure tons of other places that were just left to die because Congress refused to pay for their medical bills, to, for, to pay any compensation for those families and for what they did. Why? Why be racist? Why choose racism? Is it just easier? Like, I don't get it. I really don't. Feel free to explain it to me in comments or something. All right, sorry for the rant, but that's what happened to me today, and it's in my mind, so, all right. If it's in my mind, I'm putting it out there. Okay, thank you very much for listening. Yay, we were talking about socialism. I don't know how that ties in, but there you go. Um, and we've only got four more parts, and we're done with the book, and then I will move on. I'm excited. I'm, I'm excited to finish all of Young's, reading all of Young's work. So Harp Song for a Radical comes next, and then... Uh, also to start to reread Miss McIntosh by Darling. Like I'm, I'm looking forward to all this. So this is good. All right. Thank you for listening. Bye.